Hi, friend. It's Jessica Sun. Welcome back to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life. Have you ever gotten something that you wanted and then felt really unfulfilled in that moment? And the experience was totally unlike what you had expected. It's almost like being tricked, like we've spent so much time working towards something and yet we're not fulfilled afterward. And we're still, we're dissatisfied on the way. And then we continue to be dissatisfied once we get there. And then we're on to chase the next thing. In today's episode, you'll find out what causes this dissatisfaction and what questions to ask yourself to really get to the core of what is meaningful for you. So please enjoy the show with Dieter Randolph. Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Dieter Randolph. Dieter is a speaker, coach, and author of Meaning Fulfilled, Seven Practical Answers for Finding What Matters and Changing Your Life. He helps people find a life that they love because he believes that when you win, so does the world. Welcome to the show, Dieter. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It is absolutely a pleasure. Let's get started by talking about your new book, Meaning Fulfilled. What inspired you to write this book? Well, the basic idea is that, you know, everybody's looking for something. I think that it is a defining characteristic of, of humanity that, that every single person is kind of hungry for something, kind of homesick for something. And, you know, I think a lot of us spend a lot of time denying that, you know, we're told to pay your dues, put your dreams aside, don't listen to that voice and just, you know, sort of keep your head down. And then someday when you retire, or I don't know, whatever, somebody will give you permission to actually have dreams. And that just seems like it's not fair. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, when you think about every hero and every story you ever heard, they have that same homesickness, that same hunger. And the thing that makes a hero a hero is that they do something about it. And so I really wanted to, to explore the idea of well, what is it that we're hungry for? And it's not uh, you know, confined in any particular religious path or any, I don't want to put a brand name around it because I don't think that's what it is. I think it's way more fundamental. I think it has something to do with those moments when you feel like you're just like really authentically yourself, you know, when you're in the zone, when you're inspired, when you fall in love and you know that you're in love. And those kind of moments, and everybody has them, although sometimes we don't know them when we see them, um, yeah. everybody has them. Those are meaningful moments. And the basic idea behind the book is sort of exploring, okay, well, what is that? How do we get more of it? How do we string those moments together? How do we know them when we see them? Because I really believe that, that being the kind of person who acknowledges what we're hungry for, who does something about it, doesn't just make us have better lives, but it actually changes the world. And so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with this book. What kind of led you to this conclusion of the fact that we're all kind of homesick? <laughs> well, you know, it's a lot of little things. Like I said, when you, when you find something that, that just really scratches the itch, and it could be something that you don't get paid for. In fact, sometimes you've had to pay to do it. You know, the example is like somebody doing a hobby in their garage, you know, trying to do something artistic or just make something. And you'll lose track of time, for example. Or when your favorite song comes on and you have to dance, you know, those moments, that's when you really feel like yourself. And, and it's so clear that 
the rest of life is spent chasing those things. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that everybody knows that. I mean, I think instinctively. I think it's part of our, our DNA, part of our operating system, is that we know that those things are important. But I think in our culture, we just don't know what to do with it. So instead, we chase you know credit scores, or we chase some deadline or some finish line like retirement or graduation or, or whatever. And then, you know, I, I got to say, I do a lot of work with people as in my, one of my roles as a coach. And, you know, a lot of times it's, Hey, I, I, I got my wish, you know, I, mm-hmm. I made enough money. I retired or I got married or I got the job and I don't know what to do with myself because mm-hmm. now I don't know who I am anymore. And it's that kind of thing. And, and I combine that with, I've done a lot of funerals you know, it's kind of part of my job. And it's not something I'm happy about, of course, for obvious reasons, but it's something that I'm honored by to get to be a part of that. And I mean, I've been to hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And because I've done so many and because it's kind of part of the life, I have never heard anybody say at the end of a funeral, hey, you know, that was great, those things that you said, but I would have liked to know more about their shoe size and how tall they were and how much money they made. You know, nobody ever says that, you know, we're, the, the facts and figures, the data is so meaningless and mm. it's insignificant. And if we spend time chasing those numbers, we feel insignificant too. And so part of the thing that, that really drove me was, okay, we spend so much time chasing the wrong thing, sharing the wrong thing. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I think about is imagine that like Leonardo da Vinci or, or Ben Franklin or, or. I don't know, Tesla, some important inventor was in the room with you. And you said, you know what? I've got this little box in my pocket that has access to the sum total of world knowledge. I can find out the weather on the other side of the planet. I can connect with people all over the world simultaneously. You know, all of these amazing things. But, you know, mostly I use it to take pictures of nachos. You know, it's, it's, it's the thing of, I think we're sharing the wrong thing because we don't know what is meaningful. Mm. Why is there such a discrepancy between what's important and what we kind of do day to day? I think that it has to do with being taught the wrong thing. I think that for all kinds of reasons, I think that we have been taught to chase a finish line, you know, whether it's heaven, let's say, or, you know, making your parents happy or whatever. I think we've been taught to do that. And I think sometimes it's well-meaning. People want you to meet some goals and all that. But I think sometimes it has to do with control. If I can keep you from being happy where you are, but instead, if I can keep you looking somewhere else, you'll put up with being miserable right now. And you're not even going to expect me to fix it. And that makes you very controllable. I don't think that there's some big, you know, nefarious organization that's trying to do that. But I think it's a lot of little power structures. I mean, you'll put up with a dead end job if you think someday you might get a raise. You'll put up with a dead end marriage if you think someday they'll straighten out their act, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that that behavior, the uh, external reward behavior is reinforced in so many ways in so many places, but that's not the way it has to be. Like I said, I really think that instinctively we know better, but even historically, I mean, when you think about the way that jobs used to work, let's say you're a blacksmith in some village somewhere or something like that, you're not doing it to get promoted. There's no promotion. You know, you're either an apprentice or you're a blacksmith. That's it. The job is not about advancement. It's about getting good at it. The goal, instead of getting promoted to the point where you don't have to do it anymore, which is a very 21st century thing, 
The goal mm -hmm. used to be, I just want to get really good at it. I want to be known for this thing that I love doing. And so it used to be a little bit different. The word professional actually comes from the root word profess, which means I got something to say. It used to be that the idea that was that a professional had, had so much skill and such a passion for sharing whatever it was that they couldn't help themselves. Nowadays, a professional is somebody who doesn't have to work anymore. Hmm. So what's kind of your proposal in terms of how we can live beyond this and live a life of meaning? Well, I think, like I said, I think it's a lot of little things. I think it has to do with understanding that you're allowed. <laughs> I think yeah. so often people don't even know that. I think it has to do with, with changing what you want. That's a big deal. In other words, you know, it, it doesn't have very much to do with having a lot of money because you and I both know there are people who have a lot of money who ain't happy. You could be miserable on a private jet. Yeah. And so it has to do with deciding, you know, what I want isn't something you can measure, but rather I want to, I want to be happy. I want to be loved. I want to love somebody, you know, these kind of things. I want to do something artistic. So it has to do with decoding what you want. But I think the biggest piece, the thing that really makes a difference, and, and I know this because it's something that I work on all the time, but it's also something that has come out for me as, I work, as I've worked with people for years and years. The biggest deal is, and it sounds silly, but the biggest deal is learn how to tell your story. And what I mean by that is start to think of yourself as a mythic hero, a character in a story, and learn how to tell the story that's on your heart. Like I said, this is something that we already kind of know how to do. If you get pulled over for speeding and you want to talk your way out of the speeding ticket, you're probably going to tell the cop a story. If you want to ask somebody to marry you, you're probably going to tell the story of how you love that person. You're not going to cite, you know, facts and figures and compatible chemistry or something. Mm -hmm. You're teaching a kid to tie their shoes. You know, you're not going to talk about the, the tensile strength of the shoelaces or something like that. You're going to say the rabbit goes around the hole and back into the, you know, or whatever. You tell a story. So it's kind of how we're programmed. It's what works for us. Yeah. And when you think, think about like uh, when a culture is exiled, when they're, they lose their homeland and they have to go somewhere else, the only thing that they get to keep, even if they can't keep anything else, is their story. The first thing that they start creating is a story. The thing that gets passed on is a story. So learn how to tell your story and you're going to start to realize what's meaningful to you. And I think that it's like a muscle and I think you have to work that muscle. And sometimes it's, you know, low weight and high reps, find little meaningful moments, things mm -hmm. that don't necessarily uh, seem like they add up to a lot. You know, why do you like your favorite kind of chocolate chip cookie? Tell somebody, share it, you know, not a big deal, but those moments are what make us who we are. I see. And how do you tell your story? Well, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I get to do what I do. I talk a lot as I've been doing here. So I, I have a little bit more opportunity than, than, than most people. But how I tell my story is I have this opportunity. I, you know, I write and I speak and I, I work with people. But mm -hmm. as far as how anybody in particular can start to tell their story, it has to do with, I think it has to do with learning how to listen 
It has to do with, once again, changing what you want, which also means changing the kind of people you hang out with. I mean, think about it. If you're romantically involved or, or socially involved with somebody and you don't feel like you can share your truth with them, are they really your friends? Mm-hmm. You know, and this is the plot of every, you know, young adult novel, learn how to be yourself. But that's really, really important. Find people who want to hear what makes you tick. Yeah. You know, I have to say um, one of the things that, I, you know, when I do like uh, marriage counseling, relationship counseling and stuff like that, one of the things that I have people do a lot is I'll say, okay, I want you to take your partner on a, a, just a one day, like a day long date where you give them a tour of you. In other words, show them everything. You like to go see live music, take them to a concert. What's your favorite restaurant? Go there. Let, they need to know what makes you tick. Can you share that? And sometimes, I mean, that is incredibly healing for a relationship because instead of going, how can I please them with excellent communication skills or whatever, that's great. But what they really want to know is what's your thing? What's your story? But on the other hand, if somebody says to me, oh, I could never do that. Well, then I know that maybe you're not supposed to be with that person. Interesting. So it's kind of a guideline in terms of, do you feel comfortable sharing your truth and who you are with these people? Yeah. And like I said, it it doesn't have to be the big, you know, world shaking truth about your master belief system or whatever. That's great. But it can be little things like, are you really into James Brown? I don't know. What's your thing? It doesn't have to be monumental. It's little moments of, of authenticity. Yeah. You're saying that we tend to kind of hide these things about ourselves from others. And, you know, whether that's because the the economy or things like that is this the path to meaning do you think that being authentic is is living a meaningful life yeah i think it's huge i think it's a big part of it Mm -hmm. being meaningful is is almost synonymous with just being real Mm. i come from a specific religious background but you see it throughout the wisdom literature of just about every spiritual and religious modality and path and church and temple and whatever else you want to call it. There are so many places where some wise person says, be like a little kid. Mm -hmm. And it's because kids don't know, know not to be authentic. Kids are real out loud. And for all kinds of goofy reasons, we adults think that kids shouldn't do that. And we teach them to be quiet, to be seen and not heard and all that. That's not fair, but I think that we do that a lot. Mm-hmm. But the difference is, think about the way that you made friends when you were a kid. I mean, on the playground, you make best friends five times a day. You know, it's, it, best friend is a low bar. Everybody's best friend. So we, <laughs> we both like Spider-Man. So therefore, we are lifelong companions or whatever it is. Super easy to make friends. You're, you let yourself be vulnerable. But for adults, it's super complicated. Oh, well, you know what? I can't be friends with you if you don't vote like me. Well, I I got news for you. I mean, there are perfectly decent people on both ends of the political spectrum, for example. And maybe maybe part of the healing that we need to face as a a people has to do with going, you know what? Everybody's just trying to take care of people. What if we took care of each other? Mm. You know, that kind of thing. But the the grownups are so bad at making friends that that there's this thing that happens. I don't know if you experience this, but I even I experience this and I shouldn't because I'm looking for it, right? But when I see somebody at the grocery store that I know from a different part of my life, I don't know what to do with them. You know what I mean? If you see somebody from, you know, at a restaurant that you know from work, for example, 
It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I'm not supposed to, you're not supposed to be here. You're, God <laughs> ran out of extras in the movie of my life or something. You're not supposed to be here. And I don't even know if I'm supposed to talk to you. Adults right. are so bad at that. But little kids are awesome at that. Right, right. So you have the skill to let yourself be vulnerable, to just be friends. I'm hearing a lot of like emphasis on connecting with other people and being vulnerable with others. I'd yeah. like to hear your thoughts on being vulnerable with yourself. Well, I think that, that part of that, once again, has to do with going, okay, what are you really made out of? What am I really made out of? If I really get to the place where, once again, I know that I'm not defined by height and weight and the credit score, you know, then what am I made of? What's my thing? And it might be that, that part of the reason that you don't want to think about your story is that there's some hurt in there. It might be that there's some things going on that you don't want to face, much less share with anybody else, that you just don't want to face them for yourself. And that's totally legitimate. I get that. You and I both know that the problems don't go away until we face them but I can understand the desire not to. But sooner or later, we get to the place where we realize that, you know, those things, those moments when I really thought that everything was gone and everybody's got stories of loss and mourning and grief. Every single person does. I know that for sure. And it's not a contest. Some people have big loss, some people have a little loss, but we all know what it feels like. The thing is, Whatever that was that got taken away, whether it's some possessions or a, a loved one or a job that, that went away, it's gone, but you're still here. So I guess that wasn't the whole truth about you. Mm. It has to do with finding little moments ago. oh, wait a minute, I located my identity in a funky place. I didn't know any better. I thought that I was my job and then I got laid off and I had this existential crisis because I didn't know who I was for a minute. And that's cool. But now I know that it's gone and I'm here. So therefore, there must be more to me. And you can start to explore that. But the thing is, every hero story, the moment that really the hero starts to become a hero is hardly ever a moment of victory. It's the moment when the hero didn't get what they want. You think Luke Skywalker would have really liked to hang out with Obi-Wan Kenobi for a little bit longer. You know, Frodo didn't want the ring. Harry Potter would have liked to meet his mom. You know, over and over again, the hero doesn't get what they want. And that causes them to start to want different. Hmm. And that's beautiful. You know, I think that sometimes there's a big old hunk of self-help that says that you're supposed to just get what you want all the time. And you know what? Want to is better than have to. That's true. But the thing is, want to isn't everything because that's still an ego thing. And frankly, what do you know? You know, there, there are things that are so much bigger that you haven't imagined yet. If I only get what I want, then I'm just going to be in a rut for the rest of my life. And I'm never going to be surprised. <laughs> and I'm never going to be out of my comfort zone. And I'm never going to fall in love. Mm. So there's have to, there's want to. But there's this other level that I call called to, where there's this thing that your heart is just called to do. And it might be dangerous and it might be scary and it's a million miles outside of your comfort zone, but that's where you become yourself. You can get to this place where you're like, you know what? I I messed up a bunch of times and I'm going to do it again. And I guess that's okay. Mm -hmm. And your story becomes easier to tell. So let's kind of define what it looks like to tell your story and I'm sure that it kind of looks different for everyone, but let's explore some ways that you see it, you know, in people that you work with. Sure. Absolutely. I think that, that, like I said, sometimes it's not 
big thing. I mean, not everybody is Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker or whatever, but a lot of times it has to do with the moments where somebody says, you know what, the way I grew up, I thought that was everything. I thought that was the way I was supposed to be. And then something happened and I couldn't do that. You know, the people that I was emulating kind of, they, they let me down or I couldn't, you know, fly fighter jets because I'm colorblind or, you know, something happened. Mm-hmm. And here I am, and I'm trying to figure out what that means. But I can tell you for sure that here are the things that 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 speak to me. I like this kind of music, and I can't help it. I gotta dance, you know. I, I this kind of art just really lights a spark for me, and I don't get it at all. I don't understand what you know Salvador Dali is doing, but I just know that it feels important somehow. And you mm-hmm. start to talk about those things, and you start to find places. I mean. It's an amazing thing when we start to use the resources of like the internet, for example, instead of taking pictures of nachos, we start to go, wait a minute, there's a whole world out there of people who also kind of dig surrealism, but don't know why. Mm. And there's, you know, not a great example, but you know what I mean? There's moments when you can go, okay, what's your thing? Like I said, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it has to do with what I say in the book is that meaning is a matter of connection and location. Meaning is connection and location. So in other words, meaning, those meaningful moments are moments when you feel absolutely connected. You know, it hits you, you feel it in your bones, you know, when you're inspired, when you're in love for something, for for example. But meaning is also location. It's those moments where you're like, oh, I'm here. You are here. You know, just like the directory at the mall, those moments. Hmm. So ask yourself, what are the moments when I really felt present? And what are the moments when I really felt connected to something bigger than myself? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where our purpose lies and where fulfillment is. Yeah, and it's different for different people because I really believe that we're all here to learn different things. It's not, like I said, it's not a contest. It's not that everybody should find meaning in this thing. Mm-hmm. Or, or everybody should find meaning in this religious path or something like that. Because I think that, like I said, I want to get out of an idea of brand recognition. You know, I, I happen to be a Christian, but the last thing I'm going to do is tell you, oh, well, you need Jesus. Because the truth is, if, if you're into that, you'll, you'll see that in the stories about Jesus, there was lots of people who hung out with him and didn't get it. And frankly, there were people that hung out with, you know, Moses or Gandhi or Muhammad or, or the Buddha or, you know, you name it and didn't get it. So it's not about proximity. It's about having a hungry heart. And the truth is, if you're closed off, you can be with the most brilliant people and never learn a thing. But if you're open and hungry for it, then you can be in the most mundane circumstances and receive inspiration. Right. So what does it look like to be present and feel that? And how do we, how do, we do that? Because I think a lot of people will encounter it by accident, you know, doing something they love, like a hobby. But mm-hmm. what, what would it look like to, to really live that and embody that? Well, I think that what it looks like is what you see when you see a hero, somebody that we would call a genius. You know, uh, you look at like pictures of Albert Einstein and as of, there's a Robin Williams quote, because Robin Williams was a big fan of Einstein. He always said that Einstein had this look like the lights are on and everybody's home. You know, that look. And you see that in, in great people. There's photographs of people like Einstein or Tesla or Vivekananda or these important people that you go, oh, wow, that's what it looks like. 
Yeah. The thing is we can point to what it looks like in other people, inspirational people, heroes, but the better thing is that you already know what it feels like. Cause even if it's something like a hobby, you're like, you know what? I got to build model airplanes. And when I go in the garage and I build model airplanes, it just makes me happy. And I got my music on and I'm in the zone and I don't even care what time it is. And, and I, I miss meals because I, I forget to eat. And it's just so cool. This thing I do, it doesn't matter if anybody else thinks it's cool, but when you give yourself to that little thing, you start to be the kind of person who finds more of those things. You know, they say that uh, if you have a phobia, you are more likely to develop another phobia. You know, so like if you're afraid of heights, you're, you're more likely to also develop, let's say, a fear of water or open spaces or something like that. Because part of your, your brain programming is susceptible to the phobia, phobia idea. Right. And it's obviously I'm not a trained professional in that area, but I'm sure it's an oversimplification. But what I'm getting at is you can use that the other way around. If you're the kind of person who is susceptible to moments of inspiration, you are going to find that you are inspired in more and more places. So what I'm trying to tell people listening and what I was trying to say in my book is find the thing like your model airplanes or like, you know what, there's this when I cook. I don't care what time it is and I make a terrible mess in the kitchen and I don't care and it's awesome. Or when I dance or when I sing or when I write or whatever it is, find that thing and decide that it doesn't matter if anybody else approves of it. You could be a terrible cook, but if you love cooking, do it. And the secret is, of course, you'll get good at it. When you give yourself to something, you can't help but be good at it sooner or later. Mm -hmm. But anyway, one way or the other, be the kind of person who is susceptible to that inspiration. And all of a sudden, it's not just that you're good at making cookies or building model airplanes. All of a sudden, it's, you know what? I'll, I realize that I'm the kind of person who's got to go down to City Hall and stand on the front steps and protest this injustice. Or I'm the kind of person that's got to go do this thing and help somebody. I'm the kind of person that's got to speak up and stand out and do the thing. This is how it starts. It's little moments that you give yourself to. And you just allow that because so often we, we don't allow it. Yeah, because it's not profitable. Right or, right. or something. But, you know, even that's kind of nutty because when you think about it, I mean, think about like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or any one of a million heroes who didn't care what other people thought and invested in something that seemed silly. And all of a sudden they're, you know, they've got the private jet, mm -hmm. you know, it, but we're told be dependable, be predictable, have a reasonable rate of return, have a five-year plan and all of that. And no hero's got a five-year plan. Right. They just don't. I'm very curious to hear like about your journey because you grew up in a family of ministers. Mm -hmm. Your parents and your grandparents are ministers. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, naturally you would, you know, become a minister yourself and you, you kind of walked away from that and came back in a different way. So yeah, I'm curious to kind of hear more about what that was like. Yeah, well, it's just like you said, I'm a third generation minister. And, you know, if you're a third generation anything, you know, if your parents and your grandparents are plumbers, you're probably going to know how to use a monkey wrench. It's kind of part of the deal, right? Yeah. And so I grew up with that. And there's a lot of pressure to do it like your parents do it in any kind of family business. But I also had a real love for it. And so 
I felt conflicted in, in a way that, that I don't know if other people can understand because, you know, I don't know if everybody has that sense of a family business that also connects to some kind of idea of transcendence. It's kind of a unique situation, but in one way or another, I think there are some overlaps with other kinds of things. Everybody wants to make the folks happy, you know? Mm-hmm. But so anyway, I grew up with this and I went through seminary and I started as a, you know, I was traveling around the world speaking uh, when I was a teenager. You know, it's just part of the thing. I started a storefront church when I was 21 years old, you know, that kind of thing. And so I did all the things that I was quote unquote supposed to do. And I love the experiences that I had and I met some amazing people and I, I think I helped some people and I, you know, I felt closer to my sense of calling and my spiritual path and all of that. Beautiful. But what I really found out was this is not for me, man. I have this calling, this, this deep heart, this deep feeling in my heart but it sure doesn't match this, the way that I'm quote unquote supposed to do it. And I'm like, you know, this is, you know, coming into the 21st century. I'm not sure this is how you do church. You know, does anybody care that it's this, you know, one hour a week where a guy in a suit and it's almost always a white male stands in front of a group of people. And then after an hour, they go eat lunch. Is that what this is? I started to question a lot of those things. And I just, I couldn't match up what was in my heart with the way that I had to do it. And so I walked away. I got a regular job. I got a bunch of regular jobs, actually, because I was trying to feed my family. And it's kind of hard to get, fi- get hired, rather, when your degree's in theology. You know, there's not a lot of call for that out in the real world. But, you know, I did. I sold used cars. And I, I worked on computers. And I, I worked in a cubicle for a long time and, and all of that stuff. And I, I took a funny path because I ended up doing websites and I got hired by a company and then I ended up working for Google for a little while and I did all of that kind of stuff, Silicon Valley startup kind of a thing. I know my way around that world too. Mm-hmm. But what I found out is no matter where I was, people wanted to talk with me about spiritual things. And I think that when you've got something in your heart, it kind of shines out and you can't even help it. And so we'd be getting ready for a meeting and be like, you know, here's our staff meeting and we're going to talk about performance. But somebody would say, hey, you know, after the meeting, I'm going through a divorce. Can you, can you talk about that with me? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. It's not like I advertised the fact that, that, that I was trained as a minister because it kind of frowned upon, you know, it's kind of a weird thing. But it happened over and over again. People would come find me and I just, frankly, just really unhappy because I wasn't listening to my calling. So it was interesting. I was unhappy listening to my calling, but doing it in a way that was dysfunctional. And then I was unhappy being very functional. I made a lot of money in quote unquote regular jobs, but I wasn't listening to my heart. Yeah. And in those two different things, I realized, well, wait a minute, you don't have to do it the way your parents do it. And I know that seems like a no brainer, but I just was, I had to defeat a whole lot of programming. Yeah. Yeah. And the people who love me meant well, it's not like they were trying to mess me up, but you know, I'm parents, I'm a parent too. So I, now I know I'm not trying to mess my kids up either, but I probably am. <laughs> it's just one of those things. So I started doing things differently and I started a church, my wife and I, and, and uh, we do things differently, you know, little things like uh, we put a phone number up on the screen when I talk and uh, people text in questions and I answer the questions and I have no idea what people are going to say. Yeah. And we do a lot of social action stuff. So we're always there at like Habitat for Humanity or at the soup kitchens and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, other churches do those kind of things too. So part of it is, you know, what can we question and what can we challenge? And now with the Corona thing where we, you know, you can't even go to a building, it's been really refreshing, kind of scary, 
but really refreshing because it's like, you know what? The word church doesn't mean a building. It doesn't mm. mean a day of the week. The word church actually means, it comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means a group of called out people. So in other words, if church is church, what it is, is we're feeling a calling, something bigger than ourselves. But also it means that we're calling each other out. We're asking each other to stand up for something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. What I always say is, I think that some people think that church should feel like a steam bath, you know, where everybody just kind of sits around and they just validate <laughs> each other, right, right. you know, let's all validate each other, tell each other we're okay, just like we are. But that's not being called out. I always think that church should be like, you know, those movies when everybody's about to jump out of an airplane and everybody's like, mm. okay, I'm really scared, but here we go. And I got you and we're all in this together. And then the door opens and you go. I think church is supposed to feel like that. And so it's been my goal and I'm still working on it, but it's been my goal to try to make that thing happen. My, my job as a minister is to get people out into the world with big faith, with a confidence in something bigger than themselves. And that's how you change the world. It's not about converting people to a particular brand. It's about inspiring yeah. people with courage and truth. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's time comes differently and it looks different yeah. and it sounds like you for your transition kind of back into spirituality where did you get that courage from you know i think that that most of it really came from my wife we've met in church when we were teenagers and i know that sounds terrible but it it actually worked out mm -hmm. she just came to me and like i said we, i was doing pretty good financially and stuff like that and she said you know what this sucks. <laughs> wow. She's like, this, this is not this. You're not happy. And you, if you can't be happy, who cares? You know, this is not the way we got to figure this out different. Wow. And yeah. so we started to, and like I said, we're, I'm not going to claim that we're ever going to be done figuring it out, but it's okay. How can we do this differently? And we did a lot of things and we tried a lot of things and we decided that, okay, well, we're going to run retreats. And so we ran retreats for a while. We did that. She and I wrote a book together that came out a few years ago. It's, it's those kinds of things. How can you do this differently? Interesting. Yeah. Like really finding the opportunity in the situation. Yeah. And I think so for me, a lot of it is my wife, Jenny. She's really been a hero and a partner to me. And I think that that's part of the lesson too, is you got to find it, whether or not the romantic partner let yourself be a friend and let yourself find friends who once again, inspire you with courage and truth, who don't just validate your baloney, but actually hold you accountable. Yeah. I hear a lot of you emphasizing the community aspect and, and being amongst people who kind of vibe with you and know where you're coming from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. I think it's huge. Yeah. I think that there's always going to be a reason why, you know, like you've got your iPhone has got amazing sound you know, better than, than anything. And yet there's still something amazing about going to a concert. You know, I, I, you know, we have home theater, we had great speakers and a nice TV and all that kind of stuff. And yet you still want to go to the, when the star Wars movie comes out, I still want to go and pay a million dollars for popcorn and sit next to somebody that's on their cell phone the whole time, but it's still something powerful about being in community. Mm -hmm. I think we always need that. I think that, that we human beings are deeply tribal and mm -hmm. we need tribe. I see, I see. So find your tribe. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to kind of reference the book you mentioned that you wrote with Jenny, your wife, Branching yeah. In. Uh -huh. What does branching in mean? Well, the basic idea is, you know, you've heard people say, well, I got to branch out, you know, and that refers to sort of an outward direction. And I think that 
so often we spend all of our time looking outward. The, the key that we often miss is there's something in you that's bigger than anything outside of you. And so, so often the trick to life is to find a way to branch in. That sounds a little bit corny, but it's really, really powerful when you go, that moment when you go, okay, I need help. Instead of going, I'm going to branch out. If you take that moment and go, wait a minute, I'm, there's a strength in me because it's gotten me this far. What if I figured out how to listen to it and trust it? And so that was really the, the key idea of the book. And it was so much fun to write that because you know, she and I work really, really well together. You know, we're both, you know, our, our kids are, are in their 20s. So we've been around a long time now. We've been married forever and all that. It's just great. We work really well together, but we wrote the book and it's structured like a play. So it's like, I'll have a line and she'll have a line and I'll have a line and she'll have a line. So it's like this long dialogue. And so you kind of, when you read it, you kind of feel like you're talking to the two of us. Mm-hmm. What can we do to branch in? I'd like some like tangible tips and examples. I think that so much of it has to do with deciding where you get your you from. You know, what's your identity? And so, like I said before, you, you can decide to identify with things that can go away, like your job, like your possessions, like your zip code, like your height and weight and vital statistics or whatever. Or you can decide to define yourself by something that doesn't change. Branching in has to do with going, okay, well, what's always been true about me? In other words, what's the difference between facts and truth? And if you can understand the difference between facts and truth, you're going to be a way happier person. Facts, quite simply, are the things that change. It used to be a fact that you lived a certain place. You probably moved. It used to be a fact that, that you were two feet tall, but you're not a kid anymore. You know, that kind of thing. Facts are important. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we're supposed to ignore those things. Life is not an illusion. It's very real. We're here. It's a fact that you got to pay your bills. But facts can't tell you who you are. Mm. So what's true about you? True with a capital T, true. What's true about you? And like I said, for different people, it's different things. Do you have a spiritual sense of a connection? Uh, What's the thing about you? You know, the, the kind of things that we've been talking about for a while, branching in has to do with finding the things that never changed about you. Yeah. And living from that place. So you can do that exercise. What is it about you that, that hasn't, that's always been there? Yeah. What's true with the capital T for you? That I'm never going to quit trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And actually figure out is even, isn't even the right word. It has to do with feeling it out. You know, it's not an ego thing. It's not an intellectual process. It's something that, that is a heart pursuit. What's true about me is that as you now know, I can't quit talking about it. I can't mm-hmm. quit thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And no matter where I find myself, I'm going to be trying to figure this out and feel it out and talk it out and everything else, no matter what. What's true about me is I know that I'm hungry for this and homesick for it, you know? And so I'm always going to be trying to figure out how to get it home. Yeah. And then helping others on the way. Yeah. I think you have to. Yeah. Well, Dieter, Thank you so much for sharing your ideas on what it is to live a meaningful life, be authentic, and branch into who we are. I really think that the point about facts versus truth, that can be extremely eye-opening if we choose to live that question. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, I'm honored. It's really a lot of fun. It was nice talking to you.